National Socialism had charm uh, and was also sexy. I mean, fascism was sexy and is still sexy. And this is something we should not deny because otherwise we are not realistic about the the threat of, uh, of, uh, of fascism today, and especially the power of seduction on the young people. Welcome back to Portals, a virtual taste of the International Literature Festival Dublin, taking you beyond your radius. I'm Kaylin Hogan, and today I'll be speaking with Geraldine Schwartz, winner of the European Book Prize for Those Who Forget, One Family Story, A Memoir, A History, A Warning, translated by Laura Maris and published by Pushkin Press. Thanks so much, Geraldine, for joining us uh, from Berlin. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Hello. Hello, Dublin. So uh, Germany has definitely weathered the pandemic better than most and uh, it's uh, an interesting time to be speaking um, under lockdown. How is the situation there and how has it been for the last few weeks? Uh, well, actually, um, I was first in France. I was locked down in France uh, because my parents live in France and my father was very ill. Um, and after a couple of weeks, I came back to Berlin. So I could actually compare the situations between France and Germany. And what I found uh, really interesting is that the corona epidemic uh, revealed how differently democracies like France and Germany react to crisis and how different their political cultures are. Um, in France, I had the feeling that um, the crisis has uh, brought to the surface an old pattern of the exercise of power, which is a, a kind of state paternalism, you know, a state uh, which is a kind of caring father, uh, a wise decision maker that guarantees economic, social and cultural life, but provided you don't ask too many questions and it's not as transparent. And it has also a bit of a, an authoritarian uh, 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 level. And when I came back to, to Berlin, where there was no, no real lockdown, you know, the shops were closed, of course, the restaurants, but people could uh, go in the parks, uh, they could uh, walk in the streets, they could go, go to the lake. Um, and it was much more free than in France, where uh, you, there, everything was more or less prohibited, except going out for one hour every day. Um, and um, I followed the speeches of, uh, of Angela Merkel, and uh, I found that the way she was actually addressing her people was uh, very mature for a democracy because she was actually putting in the center of her messages the responsibility of the citizens. So she was really uh, appealing to responsibility. And in France, President Macron was much more uh, uh, asking for discipline, you know, obedience and discipline. And I found it quite interesting to see this difference because for me, it is relevant uh, of the main difference between Germany and France, but also maybe between Germany and other countries, which is the ability of um, the state to trust its citizens um, to act in an intelligent way without forcing uh, uh, any, any, any too strict laws on them. This is, this is my, my experience of the, of the epidemic. And yours is a very timely book, I think, about authoritarianism, uh, megalomaniacal leaders and collective denial, which I think in this pandemic, we're seeing the effects of that in some countries and the importance of that sort of democratic contract. I was reading today about how the uh, the far right, how the pandemic has been in some ways a setback for the rise of the far right in Germany. And it's given Merkel a sort of... Um, a new standing. Have, have you seen that change over the last few weeks and, and months? Um, has that affected sort of the political landscape as well? Well, I think it is a quite a natural reaction of the people to try to, uh, to be more solidar with uh, the uh, political leaders of their country during cri a crisis, you know. So extremist parties during crisis actually tend 
to, to set back. Um, but uh, I have to say in Germany, because uh, Angela Merkel did a great job, of course, you know, she probably uh, convinced also parts of Germans who were um, quite doubtful towards uh, Angela Merkel in the in the last years. She convinced them so that she was actually a great leader um, and that she could manage uh, at the same time, manage a crisis and respecting the rules of democracy. So this mixture, which is, uh, I think, uh, probably the mixture everybody would like to have in a, in a leader, uh, Angela Merkel uh, managed to, to, to incarnate uh, this in Germany today. Um, but I think in general, also looking at other countries like Brazil, also the UK, um, countries which are, uh, um, which are, which leader are populists, um, the way these countries, or even the United States with Donald Trump, who is a populist, the, the catastrophe leadership of the pandemic in these countries did influence, I think, some uh, voters in Europe, uh, at least in, in, in Germany, and made them be more aware of the dangers pop populist parties and populist part, uh, leaders um, uh, represent and the dangers of voting for leaders who actually don't have uh, any experience of the exercise of power. Yeah, I think the, the consequences we're seeing in, in, you know, under Trump, Bolsonaro, uh, Boris Johnson and Putin is very clear, the countries with some of the, the highest deaths and the highest cases. So it is, it is becoming very starkly clear the effects of their leadership. Also because uh, they too much, uh, you know, use uh, fake news. <laughs> and uh, the fake news is actually the worst um, you can have in a pandemic because uh, to face a pandemic and to deal with a pandemic, what the first thing you need is information and transparency so that people are informed. And not only that they are informed, but they also believe in, um, you know, in, in, in classical medias and in the information the, the state provides. So um, this is, uh, the, the crisis uh, has shown that in countries where this trust has been misled, the, um, the people tend to believe more in, uh, in comparison uh, theories, and that's the worst way to manage uh, a pandemic. You've worked for many years as a, a journalist yourself, and um, your book is, is, you know, a work of, of sort of deep research, but it's also deeply personal as well. It weaves together your family's experiences with the history of the Second World War and the ideological forces that, that shaped Europe today. Um, would you like to read us a passage from the book before we, we get started with the discussion? The book in, in, in English uh, has a, a different title uh, than in Fr French. It's called Those Who Forget. In French, it's Les Amnésiques, which is a bit different. It's uh, maybe a bit stronger. Uh, and in, in, in Swedish, it's the Mitläufer, which is uh, the one those who follow. So it's quite interesting to see the differences between the titles uh, in, in, in different countries where the book was uh, translated. So those will get chapter one, to be or not to be a Nazi. I wasn't particularly destined to take an interest in Nazis. My father's parents were neither on the victims nor the executioner's side. They didn't distinguish themselves with acts of bravery but neither did they commit the sin of excel zeal. They were simply Mitläufer, people who followed the current, simply in the sense that their attitude was shared by the majority of the German people, an accumulation of little blindnesses and small acts of cowardice that, when combined, created the necessary conditions for the worst state-orchestrated crimes known to humanity. For many years after the defeat, my grandparents, like most Germans, lacked the insight to realize that, though the impact of each Mitläufer was tiny on an individual level, it had a cumulative effect, since without their participation, Hitler would not have been able to commit crimes of such magnitude. 
The Führer himself sensed this and regularly took the measure of his people to see how far he could go, all the while inundating them with Nazi and anti-Semitic propaganda. The first massive deportation of Jews in Germany, which would test the general population threshold of acceptance, took place in the exact same region where my grandparents lived. In October 1940, more than 6,500 Jews from the southwest of the country were deported to a camp in the south of France. The Nazis wanted to know how much the people would be able to stomach. They didn't hesitate to operate in broad daylight, herding hundreds of Jews to the city center to reach the train station with their heavy suitcases, their children in tears, and their exhausted elderly. All of this right before the eyes of apathetic citizens who were incapable of exercising their humanity. The next day, the district chiefs proudly announced to Berlin that their region were the first in Germany to be Judenrein, purified of Jews. The Führer must have rejoiced to be so well understood by his people. The time was ripe for following. Thanks so much, Geraldine. Um, and when you speak there about testing what people would be able to stomach, you know, trying to, the, the process that happened where, you know, it, it wasn't all of a sudden that, that Jewish people were deported to the camps, that this was, you know, a, a long process of, of rights being stripped away and, you know, propaganda building. And the Irish journalist Fintan O'Toole has written um, a brilliant article about trial runs for fascism and, you know, how the Trump administration in the US is sort of has been testing, uh, you know, bloodied the waters uh, in some way with the, you know, the, pro the procedures at the border and putting children in cages and how this is sort of you know, testing what people will accept. And I think your book really shows that uh, that process in a very powerful way. But uh, it starts with you finding the documents in, in your family filing cabinet um, and the documents of your of your grandfather, your Opa, um, relating to his, his company, Schwartz & Co., uh, and the petroleum business that he bought off the Loebman family um, at a time when the Nazi regime was uh, effectively stripping Jewish people of their livelihoods. Uh, tell us about finding those documents first and how that sort of sparked this quest to find out more about the Loebman family and your grandparents' experience. I knew that my grandfather, my German grandfather, had been a member of the Nazi party, but... Um, and that he never held any kind of official position under the Third Reich. I knew also that he never had been a soldier in the Wehrmacht. But um, what I didn't know and what I discovered one day in the cellar of our family house in Mannheim is that in 1938, he took advantage of Nazi policies um, to buy a business from a Jewish family for a low price, obviously the family Lubman, and I found this contract in the cellar and I thought, well, this is really one step more. And as you mentioned before, what is uh, quite interesting in, um, in, in the Third Reich is how step by step um, the population will become accomplice of the crimes of the Third Reich. And one step which was very uh, central in that was um, when Nazi regime made the crimes legal. Uh, so it was the perfect way actually to make people become complicit while still keeping their consciences clear. So um, my grandfather, when he bought this uh, Jewish business, for him, you know, what, what, what he did was legal. It was, it was in the framework of measures encouraging the Iranization of Jewish good. Um, and it was a price fixed uh, more or less by the authorities and with a valid contract. So this is a very important thing because this can happen today. Uh, any kind of legalization of crime um, can uh, make people become complicit. Um, I, was a, I was a bit shocked by this discovery, but what shocked me more is when I discovered letters between one survivors of this Jewish family, the family Lubman, 
who survived um, uh, the, the deportation to Auschwitz. He wasn't deported to Auschwitz, but lost all his family in Auschwitz and escaped to Chicago. And after the war, he asked for um, reparations to my grandfather. And um, my grandfather kept um, the exchange of letters uh, between himself and Julius Lippmann. Um, and the letters show uh, that my grandfather has absolutely no sense of, of, of guilt and, and of empathy. And he doesn't actually want to understand that he was also part of this crime by buying this, uh, this company. Um, I also looked for the family Lukman because um, I thought what happened actually to this family after they sold their company. Uh, so the family Lopman uh, was not present in any kind of archives uh, in, in Mannheim, the city where my grandfather used to live and where he bought the company. But I found actually an uh, old cousin quite close from to London. She's, um, um, she's retired there. And I went to see her and she gave me more information about what happened to the Lopman family. And the Lopman family, after they sold the company in 1938, tried to escape to the United States, but they never got any visa for the United States. You know, the USA closed their uh, doors to most of the Jewish uh, people from Germany wanting to escape Germany and Austria, so that they um, were trapped in Nazi Germany and were finally sent to Auschwitz, uh, where most of them died, except uh, Julius Lippmann, survivor. This was a very important source, uh, this witness that, um, uh, who I met uh, in London. And um, the other very important witness for me was my father, who could give me much more information about uh, his parents, because myself, I haven't actually known my grandfather, who died before I was born. And I hardly knew my, my grandmother. Um, so that these were my main sources for um, the family story. And this family story, I wanted to mix it with the big history so that uh, I cross um, family story and the official history. Because I think that um, the official history often lacks emotion and psychological approach. Um, and on the other side, the family history needs the historical filter because the uh, family history is a kind of history which uh, is, uh, can be distorted, you know, by emotions uh, uh, and, 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 and end up actually like a legend. So you need to cross, I think, both kind of memories to try to reach something maybe which is close uh, from what actually happened. I think throughout the book you show sort of the, the, the narratives, the competing narratives of, you know, what has happened in the past and how we understand it and how those narratives change and come into conflict with each other. And I think the official narrative often depends on this idea of sort of heroes and villains where your family story, I think, tells, you know, um, an experience of maybe the, the, the gray areas of, of complicity and of, um, you know, of, of being both under a dictatorship, but also, you know, uh, part of the Nazi party as well and, and complicit in, in a way. And this whole concept of, of Mitlaufer that you speak of. Um, and the, the correspondence that you mentioned between Julius in Chicago or his lawyer and your grandfather uh, it's really remarkable. I mean, it goes over five years of letters back and forth. Um, and you really sort of show this this huge disconnect in your grandfather's sort of understanding to the point where he is, you describe, you know, sort of pitying his own misfortune or speaking about how uh, the reparations are a challenge to his existence and the sort of the complete tone deafness or, or lack of understanding of how that must sound to, to a survivor of, of the Holocaust. Uh, how, you know, how was it to try and understand his, his mindset, you know, as someone you had never met, but who you were trying to understand through these letters? 
Well, this is then where, you know, the bigger history helps, of course, because uh, from the small history of my grandfather, uh, the my reaction was uh, first uh, to think, um, is this attitude, was this attitude symptomatic of the German society of the 50s? Uh, and, um, and yes, uh, I found out that it was uh, after the end of the war, the German people rejected really en masse all responsibility for Nazi crimes. And instead of, of showing empathy for the victims of Nazism, like the Jews, they pitied their own fates. And for me, this was um, uh, a real... Uh, uh, real discovery because I asked myself how Germany managed to transform this collective amnesia into a very deep sense of historical responsibility, um, a work of memory which actually allowed democracy to become deeply rooted in the German society. And this is a society I know today. And uh, what I mentioned before um, was the pandemic crisis and, and the way Germany reacted in a very democratic way, you know, shows how, how, how rooted this democracy is and uh, the, the will of, of, of transparency and, and responsibility. So I thought, what an incredible, stunning contrast between now and the 50s. Um, and, and I wanted to, to, to tell this story of, uh, of, a, of a quite miraculous transformation uh, of, German, of German society. I think there's so many parallels with, uh, you know, with our times today, um, that sense of victimhood from people who are really in positions of of power or who are sort of, you know, are supporting a regime that maybe is doing harm to, to minorities. We see that in, in the US, I think, at the moment with this idea that it's, you know, it's Trump supporters who are hard done by. There's almost a sense that they're they're the victims in this situation. Um, so I, I saw a lot of parallels with that in your work. What is uh, interesting in the war, in the way Germany made um, its uh, memory work is that it managed to place uh, the emphasis on the, um, the figure of the Mittläufer, the, the one who follow, those who follow the current, you know. Those who follow the current are really in the center of this memory work. In the... Um, Collective memory of war and dictatorship, we tend to divide the attitude of society into three categories, the perpetrators, the victims, and the heroes. And in doing so, we forget this category, which is absolutely central, uh, of the Mittläufer, those who follow the current. It's central because it concerns the majority of society. Um, most of the people during wars and under dictatorships are not perpetrators, are not heroes, uh, are not really victims either. Uh, they are just following the current. And they are often, this figure is often forgotten in history books, in novels, in films, because they have actually nothing spectacular to offer. I mean, the story of my grandfather is absolutely not spectacular, you know. This category is the most important if we want to really learn from history, because we cannot imagine being monsters like Hitler or Mengele. Um, so when we read stories about Hitler and Mengele, we don't identify ourselves with these monsters. But we can imagine being my grandfather. You know, we, we can imagine wanting to take advantage of a situation, you know, if tomorrow sometime the, in, in, in Germany, the flats of the Turkish people would be sold for half the price, uh, you know, I think uh, people would go and buy them. So um, we can imagine repeating these kind of mistakes uh, today. The mistakes of these Mittläufers who are accumulating little acts of blindnesses, indifference, small acts of cowardice, opportunism, and step by step become uh, accomplices of criminal ideas and criminal political parties. Um, and so I, I dedicate my book to the Mittläufers. I wanted to write a book about this forgotten figure of, of history. And uh, obviously the ones I was legitimate to write about were uh, my, my, my German 
grandparents. I mean, we've uh, talked about my grandfather, but my grandmother, Oma, she always also was a, a midlifer. Um, and she followed the current not out of conviction, um, not out of opportunism, but she was really fascinated. And that also happens. You can be a midlifer just out of fascination. Um, Hitler, uh, you know, uh, had a magnetic voice, some witness, witnesses uh, said later, and it was uh, difficult to resist him. And um, this is why I, th I thought it's important to tell the story, to make people be aware that they can step by step uh, support a criminal regime or criminal ideas without noticing it. And I think the, the contrast between the motivations of your opa versus your, your oma are, are really interesting in the book. And, you know, for your granddad, I think it was sort of opportunism in some ways. And for your, your grandmother, uh, you speak about the charm of Nazism, um, which is quite a, a striking term. But, you know, there's moments where, you know, later in her life, she would sort of you know, say, well, this would never have happened under the, the Fuhrer or under Hitler. And there's almost a nostalgia she has for, I think, the security that she felt at that time, the strange security even in the midst of a war, um, or maybe the, you know, sort of the ideological security um, at the time. And, and so she has a sort of different experience from your grandfather. You know, long after the war, she still was dreaming about a cruise to Norway, uh, where she was allowed uh, to go, she was allowed to take a cruise in 1937, thanks to the Nazi recreational uh, organization Kraft durch Freude. And um, this was a luxury which was uh, previously unimaginable for a woman from a social class, you know. I mean, national socialism was also socialist in the sense that it offered a lot to this um, lower class, uh, like, you know, a, a luxury cruise to Norway. Um, so uh, national socialism had charm uh, and was also sexy. I mean, fascism um, was sexy and is still sexy. And this is something we should not deny because otherwise we are not realistic about the, the threat of, uh, of, uh, of fascism today. And um, uh, the, especially um, the, the, the power of seduction on the young people, uh, even today. You show very powerfully the impact that even minor complicity or opportunism, taking advantage of laws that really we should know are harmful um, or, you know, a, a regime that we know is doing harm can, can you know, cost lives, can, can impact families, you know, for generations. I the you know following the story of Julius um the Lobman family and how losing his business you know affected his ability or their ability to leave safely uh you know eventually being sent to France and his wife his brother and his son uh eventually being sent to Auschwitz from there and and dying um in the camp you know the kind of the knock-on effect of you know, the simple opportunism maybe that your granddad uh, justified to himself uh, shows how, how, you know, even minor complicity can um, kind of help that wider regime or help that, uh, you know, sort of uh, that uh, terrible sort of uh, result and it helps achieve that in a small way. It's just being aware of the consequences of what you do. Always keep in mind that millions and millions can do the same. So what happens if uh, 10, 20, 30 million of people do the same as you do? And this you can apply to everything in life today. You know, this is actually um, the, the sense of responsibility, of individual responsibility in a, in a, in a society. This is, this is what we can learn uh, from, from this past. You speak about um, capitalism as well within the book, and I, it, it was something that I, the reparations, the responsibility of sort of big business and, and the economic profit made off, you know, the seizing of assets of Jewish people and, and the sort of boycotting of Jewish businesses um, is, is very striking in the book. Uh, and you, to quote you, you say, by, by our opportunism, by our conformity to all-powerful capitalism, 
Um, we are in danger of losing democracy, peace and freedom. Uh, and that's something that I think runs through the book is how that opportunism and that, um, I guess, that sense of greed um, can make us complicit in a regime. Um, how, how was that? Was that something that was important for you to really bring out through this book? I feel like it's something that's not addressed as much when we speak about the Holocaust, when we speak about the Second World War. When we talk about the Holocaust, we talk about, about the deportations and the extermination and concentration camps. Uh, and so we keep wondering what would I, I have done um, the, the truth is that uh, it was actually quite difficult for the people, the society, to, you know, to really, at the point where the deportation started, to really react, to intervene, because at this point it was already too late. Uh, and if you would have uh, intervened, like uh, if my grandfather would have said, stop, I don't want my neighbors to be deported, or the butcher, or, you know, uh, they could have been killed. But what is important is how do you come to this point, you know? And um, one step which was very important is the Iranization, which means uh, taking advantage of the Nazi policies to buy to, uh, Jewish assets for low price. This was a very important step which after led to even worse policies, which was the deportation and the killing. And at this step, uh, uh, people like my grandfather, but there were much worse cases than my grandfather, of course, um, they uh, took advantage um, and they made a step. They took the initiative to, uh, to take advantage. And this is important because we are, not an, we are not anymore in the problem of apathy and indifference, which is also a, a problem in the dictatorship, which leads to crime. But we are in a step more, which is taking the initiative to buy a company for a low price. And um, as you mentioned it, unfortunately, it is something which is not that present uh, in our memories. Um, the the iranization the 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 way a whole society took advantage of the the fate of the jews and this is not only germany this is also in france uh, in france the witnesses uh, reported that they saw that one day after the jews were deported neighbors went in their in their apartments to steal everything from them um, so by doing this people actually showed to the regime that they kind of agreed with their crimes. And this is one, one reason why after the war, it was very difficult for these people to actually criticize because they had been really actively part of these crimes by uh, stealing the Jews. The, um, the 30s in Germany were uh, marked by, it was actually, you know, the Germans were not more anti-Semite than the, for the French, for example, or, or the, than other countries. But from the moment where the society understood that they could take profit personally, take advantage personally of the persecution of the Jews, they became anti-Semite. <laughs> and it's not only by taking their assets, it's also by uh, getting rid of a competitor, for example, you know, uh, another bakery, which was owned by a Jew, Jew would, would have to close the doors, so you would get rid of a competitor. Uh, or also at university or the doctors, you know, they could uh, get rid of a, of a rival or uh, take um, uh, a position which uh, was uh, occupied by a Jew before. Um, so this is, I think, one of the main reasons why the society became anti-Semite. It's because they could feel that there was um, uh, this greed, as you, as you mentioned it, that there was this opportunity to take advantage. 
And do you think, I mean, in this moment with the pandemic, I think there's been a questioning of the of capitalism as an economic model um, and the inequality that, you know, is deepening around the world. Uh, do you think that uh, capitalism uh, is, can it go hand in hand with democracy? Is, is uh, does capitalism, you know, essentially erode democratic values, do you think, from what you've learned through through writing this book? You know, I'm not uh, against capitalism, uh, like I'm not against religion, <laughs> but I think we should uh, not take, uh, follow capitalism like we follow the Bible, you know, I mean, uh, I'm against all kind of extremism. And I think uh, capitalism, uh, the problem today is the way we deal with capitalism uh, because uh, the man is serving the economy and it should be, the, it should be reversed. The economy should serve uh, humanity. And this is where we've, uh, we've landed, you know. Um, and of course, um, the way actually people are following this logic that actually they're serving economy and they are not looking for economy to serve humanity is the result of a lack of critical sense. Um, it only works because people behave like robots and they don't understand actually what their role is in their machine. So this is the link I could make with my book. Uh, um, it is important in any kind of system, uh, totalitarianism, uh, communism, fascism, capitalism, or in a religious state like Iran, to understand actually what your role is as an individual in this machine, in the system. And to understand that um, as a mass of people, as belonging to a mass of people, you are actually able to change things. Uh, this is the, the, maybe the, the, the lesson of my book, is to try to make people aware that they actually have a role to play and that they have power, that they can organize themselves and change things. Because most of the time, people see themselves as a victim. They see themselves as a victim of history, as a victim of a criminal regime, like the Germans in the 50s, they saw themselves as the victims of, 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 of the Third Reich. Um, and, uh, and today, most of people see themselves as victims of capitalism. But, you know, capitalism, it's not something you can fight uh, as you fight uh, Hitler or as you fight uh, uh, a pandemic. It's something you have to change from inside. So everybody actually has to understand that he's part of this big machine called capitalism. Um, and this is, this is missing until today because most of the people don't want to take the responsibility that they have a role in this system. And so um, they don't take any initiative to change it. And political parties, uh, like populist political parties, they are reinforcing the, this feeling, uh, uh, this victimization of people. Uh, they are seducing people by confirming them in the role of a victim, of a victim which is actually waiting for a leader uh, to solve all their problems. Uh, this is a very classic, actually, way of manipulating people, you know. So they're waiting for the state, a state which will take care of everything, uh, save them. Um, and uh, But the price for that, if you want uh, a political leader which saves you, the price normally for that is that you have to shut up. <laughs> so this is uh, the choice that people have to make. Do I want... Uh, like in China, a state which actually takes care of everything, uh, but infantilizes me so that I'm, I'm a kind of, you know, I'm a kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of animal which just have to, to follow. Yeah, exactly. A midwifer which follows the, uh, the current. Or do I want freedom? But freedom means 
I have to work. I have to read the papers. I have to make up my mind. Uh, I have to argue. I have to be able to discuss. I have to tolerate. Um, so democracy is linked to the capacity of people to acknowledge uh, their duties uh, and their, their responsibilities. Um, and this is, uh, I think, what is uh, at stake nowadays uh, in Europe. Uh, you speak of the, the very momentous change um, and the ability to change uh, through the memory work that was done in, in Germany. And I, I thought it was very interesting how uh, you know, the, the acknowledgement of what happened in the past was not immediate post-war. It was something that came about through a lot of uh, sort of con intellectual conflict and, uh, you know, political conflict over how to address the past and how to acknowledge it. Um, and you show through the book how the, the different approaches to remembering and, and dealing with the past have has resulted in very different sort of systems um, in different countries in Europe. Um, what is the sort of, what do you think is the result of that today and, the you know, the political uh, conflicts that we're seeing in Europe at the moment? Um, how is that a result of how we're, we have dealt with the past or are still dealing with the past? Well, uh, in Germany, uh, we always have to remember that it took at least 20 years before um, the society started really to acknowledge uh, uh, its responsibility in uh, in the crimes of the Third Reich. My father actually is a very important uh, figure in the book because he incarnates this generation um, who uh, was born in, 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 in the 40s and um, in the end of the 50s uh, started actually to open their eyes. My father was reading books which were almost forbidden about the crimes of the Third Reich. He confronted his own father. And um, in the 60s, uh, uh, he was also part of uh, the students' uprising in uh, Germany, um, where uh, m many students uh, started to revolt against the political amnesia and the impunity enjoyed by the former Nazis. And they demanded that light be shed on the Nazi past. And not only, and that's interesting, not only on an official level, but also on a personal level, which means they started to question their own parents about what they had done under the Third Reich. Um, and it was probably not easy, you know, to question uh, your own parents and uh, to, 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 to have this intergenerational break up. But it was necessary to lay the foundations for a new democratic society, which was clearly rejecting Nazism. And um, one of the great achievements of this work is that step by step, it came from the ground, from the basis, from society, this will to shed light uh, on, on the Nazi past. And second, it, it really placed an emphasis on how an individual might transform into an offender, a perpetrator, or at least a mitläufer, one uh, who follows. Um, and in most other European countries, uh, including France, people didn't make this kind of work. Um, they were encouraged to identify with uh, the victims or with those who resisted, but never with the perpetrator or with the mass who followed the current. And this was also the case in Eastern Germany. In Eastern Germany, uh, after World War II, um, the the country was uh, founded uh, on a legend. Uh, the legend was that uh, most of the Eastern uh, East Germans had been communist resistance during the war, which was actually absolutely ridiculous because most of the people had been Mittläufer, uh, uh, like, like, the, like the West Germans. But the leaders of Eastern, of the GDR, uh, had been resistant. They had been communist resistant and they projected their own experience on the whole society so that they didn't make the same memory work as in the West. When the wall fell, suddenly the West Germans met uh, uh, East Germans who had no experience at all of democracy, of freedom, and who had 
made a memory work based on the perspective of the victims. Um, so that um, until today, this big difference between the two parts of Germany uh, is still very visible, uh, especially in the vote towards, um, in the vote for the extremes, uh, right extremist party AFD, Alternative für Deutschland. In East Germany, um, the votes for the AFD are three times uh, higher than in the West. It's the classic rhetoric of victimization of the people. And this works, uh, this works very well. So the people in uh, East Germany, part of society, I would say one third of the society, uh, still feels uh, like, uh, like a victim and is not um, ready to take responsibility in a democracy. So this is the main uh, consequence I see in Germany, the difference between West and East. Uh, but then in Europe, in general, uh, I think countries like Italy, um, which has not done any memory work. Italy is the country where fascism was born. <laughs> it's the country uh, which was the first allied of Nazi Germany in World War II. And uh, after the war, they manage actually to uh, make their crimes being forget by, you know, hiding behind the atrocities of the Nazi crimes. And I would say most of European countries uh, took advantage of um, the fact that Germany had the worst crimes, really the worst crimes, made the worst crimes in Europe to not to make their own memory work. Um, the problem is that uh, a country which is not capable of facing the mistakes of the past cannot learn from the past and also misses an opportunity to, um, to anchor the democracy in its society. We're asking um, writers on the podcast what freedom means to them in this moment. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, I think freedom is, uh, is something sub sub subjective for people living in wealthy, democratic, open societies. Uh, freedom might be to be able to work from home. <laughs> Uh, for somebody living in Russia, it's uh, to be able to uh, speak uh, your your you know speak freely in the street without going to prison. So it is a bit subjective. But I would say, for me as a European, um, freedom is to be able to choose my identity. And this is what uh, Europe, the European values actually offer me, the possibility to be, uh, you know, I'm German and French, you know, to be, I have two passports, I can be both, I can shape my identity. Um, I'm not forced to be only, uh, uh, to identify myself only with the place where I was born. You know, I can, I can move to other places, I can live in other countries, I can build, build a new identity. And I love the complexity of this European identity, which is actually uh, to, to be able to choose your identity, because it's the best weapon against political parties who try actually to impose uh, an identity you know, uh, a, a, a uniform identity. Usually it's white, uh, Christian, heterosexual, and nationalist. And this exclusionary definition of identity amounts to designating a whole series of enemies. Um, and this is a danger we, urge, we really urgently need to fight by having the sense um, having the awareness that uh, we are free to choose our identity. Most people uh, are aware of that, I think, in Europe. But 
also a, a, a group of people which is actually rising, uh, unfortunately, um, tends to uh, be seduced by this offer of populist party um, of a very simple identity, which uh, gives uh, the gives us uh, the the opportunity not to think, you know. So a very simplistic and um, identity which we only have to take as such without having to think. So this is the main freedom uh, I, I, I for me. The, 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 the priority for, for, for me is that I want uh, a Europe where I'm still able to choose my identity. And is there anything you're reading at the moment, Geraldine, that you would recommend? I would recommend uh, a classic uh, by Stefan Zweig, The World of Yesterday. <laughs> um, Stefan Zweig is an uh, Austrian author uh, Jewish, and uh, in the, the world of yesterday, he uh, actually uh, explains how his generation, born in the late 19th century, were really dreaming of a united Europe. It was an incredible time, 1900 until 1910, and he described this in his book. And then he describes how suddenly, Without any country really wanting it, the First World War uh, uh, occurred. Uh, and, um, and the way this war, the memory of this war was managed uh, in the 20s and the 30s, actually led to World War II. So for me, his book is a, uh, uh, shows how the first half of the century is actually the best school for us to preserve our democracy uh, and our freedom. So it's a book uh, which should be actually in all the schools uh, and maybe also in Ireland. Brilliant. Thank you. And I, I think your book as well is an incredibly timely one and one that we can learn a lot from. So thank you so much, Geraldine, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you. Geraldine Schwartz's book, Those Who Forget, is available now through our festival bookseller, The Gutter Bookshop. For our final episode, we'll be speaking with Rodana Galidi, author of Two Blankets, Three Sheets. Thanks for listening in and thanks to our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council.